Hey everyone, and welcome to another episode of Stronger Together, the official podcast of your union, SEIU 503. I'm your host, Ben Morris. I want to start today by reading you a quote from Josh Lenner, the state's senior economist. Quote, the pizza parlors are being hit hard today and they need assistance. We don't want them to go under, but if the mill goes under, it doesn't matter how much assistance you give to the pizza parlor, they're going to be in trouble long term. We've seen it in our timber-dependent communities in the last 40 years that when an anchor employer leaves, you see broader struggles, end quote. There's another anchor employer that's facing problems with its budget right now, and that's the state of Oregon. On May 20th, the state's economists released their revenue forecast, and in that forecast, they predicted a $2.7 billion budget shortfall during the current budget cycle. That's right now through the end of the year, next year. And then they predicted an even larger shortfall in the next budget cycle. What that means is is that the state of Oregon will have to find new revenue, such as federal relief dollars, or it will have to make cuts to balance its budget. Compared to a mill or even the timber industry, the consequences of a state budget shortfall are much farther reaching. The state of Oregon is the largest employer in Oregon, with over 40,000 employees, and they're spread out across every community from Portland to Medford, from Harney County to Pendleton and up the coast. What happens at state agencies has a huge impact throughout our economy. For example, we know that in 2008, state budget cuts made the recession worse. Whether it's unemployment insurance, food assistance, a Zoom meeting with a teacher, or the information from county epidemiologists, the importance of public services has never been more obvious than it is right now, during the COVID-19 pandemic. Cutting these programs at a time when the need is so great would make things worse, not better, for thousands of families across our state. And the pain would hit vulnerable communities the hardest, low-wage earners, people of color, and immigrants. Right now, our union, along with many partners around the state, are fighting to make sure that we don't repeat the same mistakes we made in 2008. Instead, we need to protect families and frontline workers from cuts that make the current recession longer and more painful. What you're about to hear is a teletown hall that was recorded on May 21st with thousands of state employees from around Oregon. The call addresses the revenue shortfall and how it may impact state workers. The conversation is relevant to everyone because of the large impact that the state budget has on Oregon's economy. The recording is about an hour long, with a really interesting Q&A that starts about 30 minutes in. I really hope this helps illustrate the important work that Governor Brown and the state legislature will need to do over the next few weeks and months to make sure that we rise to this challenge and do what it takes to protect the services that Oregonians rely on. Hi, this is Melissa Unger, Executive Director of SEIU Local 503. Thank you for joining us tonight for our Teletown Hall. Um, Right now, people are joining us, and so I'm going to go over a couple of functions of the call. Um, First, if you'd like to ask a question or make a comment, press 9 on your phone at any time. You will be connected to a staff person who will take your question and put you into the question queue. Due to the call volume, we will not have time to answer every question. Second, we will be conducting polls during the call where you can press a number on your phone to vote and we will share the results with you on the call. I'll reiterate these functions over the course of the evening. In addition, I encourage you to visit the resources page on our website at seiu503.org forward slash COVID. We're going to be focusing on the state budget tonight, but I know many of you still have questions about the state's response to COVID-19 in your workplaces. So if you have questions about leave accruals, childcare, PPE, or anything else related to the pandemic, make sure to check out seiu503.org forward slash COVID. The reality is that right now in our state, it is so clear the important role that state workers are playing. Um, our workers are on the front lines of this crisis in nearly every department in different ways, whether it's our employment workers who right now are processing unprecedented amount of claims and trying to reassure people 
um, that um, they're going to be able to get the payments that they need to pay their bills, or whether it's the Oregon Health Authority, where you have um, people um, dealing on the public health side, trying to keep our community safe, and at the same time processing an unprecedented amount of applications for the Oregon Health Plan, or the DHS side, where um, we are continuing to try to make sure that we're processing the different claims that people need and trying to keep families safe in a time where um, we're trying to socially distance, make sure employees can be safe and families can be safe, or whether it's um, at ODOT where we're trying to figure out how do we maintain our roads in a time where we have to make sure that we're keeping employees safe and the community safe, um, or how are we going to deal with the influx at DMV when we're able to get back to work. All of these um, questions and all of this work just continues to show that state workers um, are on the front lines of this pandemic, um, and we um, and we really play a unique role in keeping our, our state moving forward, our community safe, and really making people feel um, that we can get through this as a state. So I just really want to thank everyone for the work that you all do. Um, and um, I, I see it every day, um, and I, I'm excited for the role our union gets to play in lifting up that work and lifting up your voices. As people continue to join, I'm just gonna repeat the functions of this call. This is Melissa Unger. I'm the Executive Director of SEIU Local 503. If you'd like to ask a question or make a comment, press nine at your phone at any time. You will be connected to a staff person who will take your question and put you into the question queue. By pressing nine, you can ask a question at any time. We will be opening up the questions and answers around 7 p.m., but you can press nine anytime to get into that queue. Due to the call volume, we will not have time to answer every question. Second, we will be conducting polls during the call where you can press a member on your phone to vote and we will share the results with you on the call. So let's just give this shot, like a shot right now with our first poll. For these poll questions, I'm gonna read you the choices and then you can press the number on your phone that corresponds to the answer. You can only choose one option. So please wait until you've heard all the choices before you make your selection. I will repeat them. Here's our first poll question. What is your top concern about work sites reopening and more people going back to work? One, access to PPE. Two, appropriate social distancing guidelines. Three, safe interactions with public, customers, and clients. Or four, access to COVID testing or temperature screening. Again, the question is, what is your top concern about work sites reopening and more people going back to work? Is it one, access to PPE? Two, appropriate social distancing guidelines. Three, safe interaction with public, customers, or clients. Or four, access to COVID testing or temperature screening. We'll just give it um, a second so you can get your votes in. And then Ben Morris, our communications director, is going to be helping us with some parts of this call. Ben, where are we at with the votes? Well, it looks like um, a bunch of people voted really quickly. Thank you. Um, number three is currently coming in at the top with 41% of people saying that safe interaction with the public, uh, customers, clients, et cetera, is their top concern. Thank you. Thank you. Um, thank you, everyone, for um, participating in the poll. And then just as we continue on, remember that you can press nine on your phone at any time to ask a question. You will be connected to a staff person who will take your question and put you into the queue. Yesterday, the state released its May revenue forecast. In a moment, we're gonna go over the details of what we learned and how that might impact SEIU members over the coming months. Before that, I just wanna see, um, I wanna hand it off to Steve Demarest to share a few words. Steve, are you on? I think he actually may have gotten dropped from the call. Steve? All right, Melissa, we'll go ahead and call him back in, if you wouldn't mind um, skipping forward and we'll-, we'll Yes, yeah, back on I'll second. just, um, we'll, we'll turn it back over to Steve. I'm gonna go over the revenue forecast. And as I go over the revenue forecast, um, the information that I'm going to share, just remember that you can press nine at any time um, and you can um, ask a question. So on Wednesday, which is yesterday, the state economists released their revenue forecast. This is a regularly scheduled revenue forecast, but it's the first opportunity to assess the damage inflicted on the Oregon economy and the state revenues by the COVID-19 pandemic. Overall, the economists are predicting a two point 
$7 billion hole for this biennium. So the biennium that we're currently in that runs through um, June 30th of July, uh, June 30th of 2021. They are predicting an over a $4 billion hole for the 21-23 biennium, um, which is pretty dire. While revenue is down about $2.7 billion, there are actually many ways to fill this hole. So here's how to think about it. The current revenue shortfall is about $2.6 billion. Um, there's um, or two, between $2.6 and $2.7 billion. We came into this, um, to this budget with a one point, a little bit of a, over of a $1.1 billion ending fund balance, meaning that um, there was in the previous budget, there was $1.1 billion that had not been spent. So it had meant that um, the last revenue forecast that happened had projected that the state was going to bring in more than $1.1 billion than what had already been spent because we were actually, our economy was continuing to grow at a really good pace. So that's called our ending fund balance. So you're able to, you get to take the ending fund balance away from the current revenue shortfall. And so the current budget gap is really about $1.5 billion. Um, we are actually one of the states that is best poised to handle this recession because of that significant ending fund balance and the fact that the legislature had not um, spent every dollar of what was the expected revenue because it was coming in later than expected. So we believe that there are a number of ways to fill this gap of $1.5 billion. First off is federal funds. So um, we need to advocate for more money, and we know that that's that conversation is happening right now in Congress. But there's also um, available funds from the previous federal acts, that, um, the previous federal um, bills that have passed um, that we believe can be used to help fill this shortfall. So there's an increase in Medicaid match dollars, and there's also um, the COVID dollars, and we're trying to figure out how much exactly can be used to help fill the shortfall, but we believe that um, there is significant dollars to help fill a shortfall. We also believe that there's um, savings due to reduced programs. So right now, there's many different programs. Some of you may be experiencing them in your um, in your agencies that are reduced, and there's just not as much um, there's not as much money being spent on that program because of the pandemic. One example of this is that um, you all have children. You may know that many school districts are starting to go through a process where they're doing furlough days and one, um, and they're cutting their personnel by about. Sorry, um, I got a little distracted. My son walked in the room, so I apologize about that. Um, so we want to make sure that we're having a discussion about savings to reduced programs. The last thing is, um, not the last, but one of the other ways that we can fill this gap is the use of reserves. The state has a rainy day fund and an education stability fund to help offset cuts. It's important to note that this is the first recession Oregon has ever been in where we've had reserves that we can use. We will want to make sure we're balancing when we want to use these reserves. So as I mentioned, the um, shortfall in the 21-23 biennium is expected to be pretty dire to be able to continue current service level. So we have to make sure that those are the only reserves we've got. And so we have to be, we have to balance when we use those reserves to make sure that we can continue to provide services and prevent layoffs. We also believe that we should be looking at all new revenues. Um, and potentially decoupling from the federal tax breaks um, that have just recently been passed for the wealthy. Unfortunately, as part of one of the federal packages that passed, um, there was some um, new tax breaks for some of the wealthiest individuals, which we believe that we should decouple from that could help produce some money that helps fill the budget hole. And lastly, we believe cuts should be a last resort and that we should first start at looking at new programs that haven't started and ways to protect critical services. Um, we, time and time again, there is proof that um, making cuts in public services prolong recessions because they impact um, more people could get laid off. People aren't giving the services they need to be able to get back into the workforce. And we um, know this um, from the 2008 recession, there is starting to be a pretty um, big sense of um, that it was public sector cuts in 2011 that extended that recession to last longer. Given what we understand about the availability of federal funds and the challenges around new revenue, we do believe that some cuts are probably likely. But we don't know exactly what they'll look like or who they'll impact in this moment, and it's too early to speculate about these details. 
As we share, as we process this information, I just want to share some next steps with you. First, the state legislature will call a special session, probably in early June, to early to mid-June, to figure out how to address the revenue shortfall. That is our preference for the legislature to get called in to do this. The governor's only way to handle cuts is to do across-the-board cuts, which we think are is a bad um, is a bad way to move forward. And then after the legislature does that, the agencies will begin to make adjustments to their programs. If there are cuts um, that change, um, if there's any cuts to agencies, um, or if um, the governor decides to call us back um, to change to talk about the contract, we will have we will bargain with our state bargaining team, um, which means that we will get a voice in this process and we will be able to have an ongoing conversation. Um, so I now, Steve, I think, has been able to get back on the line. So I'm going to pass it back off to Steve. Hello, everyone. Uh, thanks, Melissa. Everybody, thank you for joining us tonight. I want to reiterate what Melissa said earlier about the incredibly important work that you all do. People are counting on Oregon's public services to help them get through the COVID-19 crisis. These services are essential to every Oregonian, and even more so for low-wage earners, women, people of color, and immigrants, the groups hit hardest by COVID-19. Ultimately, budgets are about people. Most of the Oregon State budget pays for vital services like healthcare services, education, and public safety. A recovery plan that reflects Oregon's values will support Oregonians by protecting the services they rely on. During the COVID public health and economic crisis, we need to work together to ensure that Oregonians are getting the services they need as fast and efficiently as possible. Slashing budgets and leaving sales and crews will make things worse. We also know from 2008 that layoffs in the public sector make recessions worse, forcing more people onto public assistance while at the same time reducing the ability to provide that assistance. We can't repeat the same mistakes we made the last time there was a recession. In times like these, I'm thankful for our union. Because all of us choose to be members in union, we're in a strong position to bargain the best deal possible. It doesn't mean that we will get everything we want or stop every cut, but we are so much better off together than we are alone. So thank you again for being a member of SEIU. Molly. Thanks, Steve. So over the last week and a half, more than 4,000 SEIU members completed our state budget priorities survey, which will give our bargaining team a lot of important information about what to prioritize and how to make sure we get the best deal possible. I'm going to give you a quick summary of what, members, what our members had to say about the current situation. First, we asked members what issues were most concerning to them right now. The most common responses were pay, benefits, healthcare, and layoffs. I think that's not surprising to folks. We also asked members about how potential cuts might happen. If there, if there are cuts, would they want our union to prioritize alternatives to layoffs? We found that an overwhelming majority believe we should prioritize looking for alternatives to layoffs. Next, we ask members to prioritize the issues that are most important to them on a scale of one most important to five least important. Far and away, members said the issues that are most important to them are health insurance and take-home pay. Slightly less important um, in this survey were other benefits like employee assistance, pro assistance programs, retirement, and leave accruals. The lowest priority in this survey overall was the upcoming cost of living agreement and the step increase that we won in our last contract negotiations. But it's really important to note that the high average score for all of these options none of the options came in under a three on a scale of one to five, which means a cut to any of these would mean some group of people are losing the thing that matters the most to them. Finally, we asked members if they would rather see steep cuts and a faster return to normal or shallow cuts over a longer period of time. 
Most members said they would rather spread it out with shallow cuts that last longer. The overall takeaway from this is that members want to protect their jobs first and foremost. If there must be cuts, members want to prioritize health insurance and current take-home pay. And it goes without saying that no cuts are everyone's first choice. Um, before we move on, we're going to do another poll question. So this time we'd like to know what you are personally willing to do to support workers, uh, your coworkers, in the upcoming budget conversations. I'll read the answers twice, and remember you can only vote for one thing, so wait until you've heard all the answers to make your choice. The question again is, tell us what you're willing to do to support workers in the upcoming budget conversations. And here are your options. One, call your state legislator. Two, participate in a virtual lobby day. Three, increase your CAPE contribution, which is our member-run political program. Four, participate in a worksite action. Or five, all of the above. Those options again are one, call your state legislator. Two, participate in a virtual lobby day. Three, increase your contribution to CAPE. Four, participate in a worksite action. Or five, all of the above. We'll give it just a sec so you can get your votes in. And Ben, when the votes are in, can you let us know where we're at? Uh, we'll make can sure you? that <laughs> um, yeah, sorry, sorry, my let me jump in here and give you all the results. So yeah, yeah. it sounds like it's a pretty um, even split across the uh, across the board. Uh, the top one right now is call your state legislator legislator, but we've got an equal number of people saying they'd be willing to do everything, which is awesome. Um, so, um, I think we have uh, the second most choices on an individual one being a virtual lobby day as well. Great, thanks. So we'll make sure that all of those um, tactics are an option for us um, as we move, as our plans move forward over the next few months. And just a reminder that you can press nine on your phone at any time. Uh, we'll be opening things up for a Q&A in just a few minutes, so please press 9 now if you have a question and you'd like to get into the queue. Due to call volume, we won't be able to get to every question. Now I'd like to pass it over to Steve, who's going to let folks know what our union is doing to respond to the situation. Thanks, Molly. So there are a few key things that our union is doing to protect members during these uncertain times. First, we are doing everything in our power, both in Oregon and around the country to our international union, to push Congress to pass the HEROES Act, which includes funding for state governments. Unlike the state government, the federal government can borrow money and do what's called deficit spending. Because interest rates are at historic lows and the need for financial assistance is so great, it makes a lot of sense for the federal government to provide additional relief funding to the states. Doing so is our best bet at protecting the vital public services and public sector jobs that are so important to Oregon. Second, we are lobbying the governor and the state legislature to use rainy day funds before making cuts. And this is where we have some good news. After decades of going into recessions with no reserve funds, over the last 12 years, we have prioritized saving money and sensible tax policies. The state now has a healthy ending balance, $1.15 billion, and a healthy reserve fund, $1.5 billion. So much so that we are one of the state's best prepared to weather a recession. With an unknown economic outlook, it would be unwise to use all reserves at this time. However, lawmakers should work closely with economists to find the right balance between spending reserves today and waiting for the future. And third, we are pushing to do the state what's called decoupling from the federal tax cuts that are part of the CARES Act. And I, over, I overheard Melissa talk, uh, touch on this as well. And as she said, the last COVID-19 relief package included tax cuts for wealthy individuals and corporations estimated $135 billion. These cuts will be duplicated in Oregon tax law 
and Oregon tax revenue unless we specifically stop that from happening. We believe that we should, and we are currently looking into how much that could save. We really appreciate you hanging on for all this information. And now we're going to open up for Q&A. Uh, one more reminder, press 9 to get in the queue if you have a question. Uh, I'm going to pass it over to Ben Morris, our communications director, to facilitate the Q&A portion of this call. Ben. All right, thanks, Steve. Um, so the way this is going to work, everyone, is I'll um, call out your name and your location, uh, which uh, comes from our record, so hopefully we've got that accurate. Uh, and then I'll unmute you, um, and you can go ahead and ask a question, and, and Molly and Steve and, and Melissa will, will hopefully help answer it. Um, just so you know, we've got a bunch of questions in the queue. We probably won't be able to get to everybody. Um, so if, uh, if you're unable to get your question answered, you can leave a message at the end of the call after it, um, it ends, um, and you can just leave a voicemail. We'll get that recording, and we'll have someone reach out, back out to you. Um, so, okay, our first question today is going to be coming from Carla Burns in Vancouver. Um, Carla, if you can hear me, go ahead with your question. Thank you, Ben. Um, so a lot of the people in my office are wondering, they read the email today and at the bottom of the email they it said something about layoffs to be considered and every of course that sends everybody into a frenzy. Um, their biggest question was when does the union get involved? If there are going to be layoffs or furloughs or whatever, at what point does the union get involved with negotiations? Yeah, that's a great question. I'm gonna um I'm going to answer the first part and then probably pass it over to Molly just to um, make sure there's a clear understanding of what the layoff process is in our contract. We've actually already started to contact the governor's office about, along with our actually um, asked me to say that we wanted to engage in a conversation if there's any, um, if there's any conversations about layoffs. Um, just um, just to preemptively say, like, let's not move forward on layoffs before you engage in a conversation with us about what are alternatives to layoffs. You know, the interesting around furloughs, they cannot implement furloughs without bargaining with us. Um, there is layoff procedures in our contract, but on furloughs, that is different. And so they could not do that without bargaining with us. Um, I do think um, we feel that the governor, the governor's office will engage with us before there's layoffs. I think one of the unique things that's happening right now across the state that is important to know is that each agency is in a pretty different spot. Um, and so, um, you know, uh, oftentimes you go through the whole budget cycle and there's a conversation about how it impacts the entire state right now, whether you're a fee-based agency um, or a general fund agency, you may have really different outlooks on your revenue. And in addition, your workload in this moment may be different based off of um, what's needed in the pandemic. And so that does put us in a, um, a I think a, a different situation than we've been in the past as we go in to have these conversations, but I do believe we'll be in the conversation at the front end. Um, Molly, do you want to talk a little bit about what any, if there's any layoffs, what the procedure is outlined in our contract? Sure. So it is, um, it's a rather detailed and, and a complicated process. Um, complicated in that there are a lot of options and it won't look the same for every person that's experiencing layoffs. I think that the most important thing to know is that layoffs with, um, are within an agency. So, um, you know, there wouldn't, it, the layoff process happens within an agency and is based on, um, on seniority for the most part. And you, um, if you were to be given a layoff notice at that moment, you would also be given um, kind of an outline of where you where you are in this in this seniority process for your classification. So you would have an idea of all the options available to you. And just to give folks a general sense of some of the options in no particular order that are outlined in our contract, um, you could fill uh, a vacancy in a in a similar position to the one you're in. Um, you could demote voluntarily to a, a position that is vacant. You could bump someone in the same classification you're in that's least senior. Um, and all of these go in, a, in an order that are in our contract that's pretty easy to follow once you know um, your own situation. 
So I think the, the most important thing I want to emphasize for this process is that um, it really does, what it looks like really varies, not just agency to agency, but person to person. And so unless um, you're actually in the situation of, of being given a layoff notice, it's going to be really hard to answer specific questions. But if you are in the position um, where you get a layoff notice, you should definitely call us uh, or talk to a steward in your work, in your work site if you um, have that option and can walk you through that process and be with you every step of the day to help you understand your options. And just quickly before we go to the next question, because I do think this is just an important question, um, is to just kind of just go back to that. We have um, already started to engage and hopefully we'll be engaged with the governor's office before there's any um, announcement of layoffs um, so that we can um, explore alternatives to layoffs. Um, it's different than the state, but we have been working um, pretty closely at, with higher education um, because some of their cuts were um, so dramatic about ways to um, have alternatives to layoffs where um, that um, we think could be options with the state. And so we, we are hopeful and we do believe that um, we'll engage in those conversations before um, the, the next step is and that we actually hear about um, layoffs. Thanks, Melissa and Molly. Um, uh, one thing Molly mentioned was giving us a call um, if people are in situations where they need more information. Um, our, our number is 1-844-503-7348, which is our member assistance center, and they can help uh, direct you to a steward or to um, the member resource center, which um, assists stewards and in situations like grievances um, and contract violations. So that's a, it's a good resource for folks to have. It's also up on our website if you didn't get a chance to write that down. And we'll make sure to reiterate it again. Um, okay, moving right along, our next question is from Patricia Robinson in Salem. Uh, Patricia, if you can hear me, go ahead with your question. Hi. Um, so I was curious about what kind of protections will be available for employees once the ESMLA from the CARES Act runs out due to daycare being closed and also being in the high-risk school? Um, that is a great question. Um, I think that one, um, I think we continue at the national level to advocate for those programs to be extended. We feel like when the CARES Act was passed, there was still a moment at t in time, um, it was still a moment in time where people were hoping this was like a four or five week blip. Um, and so we've been um, pretty active in trying to make sure that those programs are extended and expanded so that they're actually more productive for even more workers. Um, so that's, um, I, I think that we don't, we, we still have some hope um, that that may happen. Um, Molly, I don't know if we've had any conversations with the state yet about what comes next on those programs. Uh, we haven't entered into any specific conversations around that. We are working right now the, uh, with the bargaining team to extend the LOA that many of you probably joined a teletown hall a couple of months ago to hear about the LOA that we bargained um, around protections for workers in leave without pay. So one thing I, I and so we're hopeful that we will we will have an extension to that LOA. Um, as long as the state of emergency is going on or if the state of emergency um, continues or comes back in a potential second wave. And so I would say that, um, you know, it's, it's still to be determined, as Melissa said, uh, what, what the benefits, the paid benefits look like, but we are hopeful that the, the piece around not being disciplined or um, being any having any repercussions for going into leave without pay status will continue um, and I think that's a priority for us so even if you run out of FEMLA time um, that you would be able to maintain your status and not be in um, any danger of, of being disciplined for instance for being in leave without pay. Great. Thank you, Molly. Thank you, Melissa, for those answers. Just another reminder, uh, you can press 9 at any time if you'd like to get into the question queue. Uh, our next question is going to be from Jacqueline Bordeaux in Salem. Uh, Jacqueline, if you can hear me, go ahead with your question. Hi. Uh, thank you. Um, my question has to do with PPE, and I'm wondering if um, once uh, once staff are cleared to return to the office environment, 
um, can wearing PPE and um, offering PPE for staff be mandatory? Yes, um, I think that is a great question. And it, we know it's top of mind for folks as they're coming back to the office. Um, we, um, in most situations, as, um, as businesses have reopened, the governor's rules around businesses reopening are making PPE mandatory. So we would expect the state to um, follow those same guidelines as they um, open up state government. We also are, you know, they have kind of said at this point that um, in phase one, which the state except for the metro counties, the entire state will be in what they are calling phase one of reopening, and the metro counties will probably join in the next week or two, um, that during that phase, nothing is changing um, for uh, worker uh, state workers and um, the kind of current who who's telecommuting and who is not. We're really hoping that after everyone gets into phase one, that we'll engage in a conversation with them about what reopening looks like and be able to have some of those very direct conversations about PPE, about um, how do we um, how do we handle clients and making sure that everyone is using social distancing and best guidelines. Um, so uh, we are hoping that we get to engage in that conversation and PPE is top of mind in that conversation. Great. Thank you, Melissa. Thank you, Jacqueline. Um, moving right along, um, our next question is from Aaron in Newport. Um, Aaron, if you can hear me, go ahead with your question. Hi, thank you. Um, so I work for CPS and I've been going to people's houses this entire time. And originally there was some talk about hazard pay for us at least. Um, and I was wondering if that talk has begun and if so, where did we land on that? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, we, um, a couple of weeks ago, did a hazard pay um, action. Um, I think that we got some of the most high, the highest number of um, petitions any time that we've ever gotten it. And we know it's a major issue um, for workers, especially workers like yourself who have had to, um, who are continuing to do um, in-person work, um, especially with clients, um, you know, workers at the state hospital, there's a, a long list of um, workers who are doing that. Um, the state has said that until the revenue forecast, there was just no money on the table. Um, and we've been trying to make the case that um, some of the COVID relief dollars that came out of the federal government would be appropriate to use for hazard pay um, since they're one-time monies and time limited. Um, and so now that the revenue forecast is over, I think um, that there's, um, there's the opportunity to potentially have that conversation again. I think it is challenging in this budget time um, to um, see where the, how the state engages in a conversation about hazard pay at the same time as they're talking about layoffs and cuts. Um, but it is something that we continue to lift up about just the difference that workers are in, depending on their work situations. Um, and that's, you know, across the board for frontline state workers. Um, you know, there's been lots of calls for hazard pay for frontline healthcare workers where many of them haven't gotten it either. Um, and so we've been trying to also work with our union colleagues about um, um, kind of an overall hazard pay proposal that would look at all workers who are on the front lines to use with COVID dollars um, that could bypass um, the governor's office and use the legislature. So that's been one of the proposals that we put forward as a use of these one-time COVID dollars is an overall kind of hazard pay proposal. And then the federal government has the HEROES pay, um, the HEROES Act that the House just passed is going to the Senate. It will not pass in its current form, but there has been some conversation at the federal level and about across the board um, hazard pay or um, pandemic pay um, proposal for all the different types of frontline workers um, that have kept our communities going um, in this time. And um, I do think that it is the federal act or a kind of an across the board state act that may be our best opportunity um, to win um, you know, hazard pay for the folks who will continue to be on the front lines and, I, you know, I think you said you're a CPS. So many of our workers in the state are on the front lines. Um, so many of our, um, you know, our long-term care workers are on the front lines. And then we know that it's, you know, it's janitors and um, grocery store workers. Um, so it's a long list of folks and, and hospital workers. And how do we um, make sure that there's comprehensive solutions to those, um, to the, those problems that all the workers, all workers are facing? 
All right, thank you, Melissa. Uh, moving on to our next question. Um, this one's going to be from Mickey Varney in Salem. Uh, Mickey, if you can hear me, go ahead with your question. Yes, I can, I can hear you. <laughs> They're gone. Oh, my goodness, Mickey's on the phone. <laughs> my question has to deal with the, there was an article in Salem Reporter that came out on the 19th about the the deal that the Salem Kaiser um, uh, educators got, the deal with the school board where the educators all the way up to the superintendent are taking Fridays off, so they're taking a 20% pay cut from May 22nd to July 31st. And then in the article it also said that they, many of them are eligible for state unemployment uh, wages or, or for the state unemployment program to make up those lost wages. And so I had two questions. How in the world would that work because you're pulling out of the same pot of money? And then second of all, why did they agree to this on the 19th before the state budget forecast or revenue forecast came out? And then I guess the uh, classified employees were going to vote on a similar plan yesterday and I haven't heard what happened with that. But I just I don't know, can you kind of explain what's going on with that? Yeah, I can. I think there's actually two different things. So um, it's actually, we signed an agreement for our PPS workers that is similar to this, and then we've actually now signed agreements, um, at, uh, I believe five of our seven universities um, around this program. It's called WorkShare. And um, we actually did a lot of research early on in this crisis to figure out if WorkShare is a program that could be used for public um, governments and got the answer that it's, that we could. And um, we have seen it actually protect a lot of members' jobs, especially at universities. And so what WorkShare is, is that if there is a 20 to 40% um, reduction in somebody's hours, um, WorkShare is a program where um, the the employer pays for the, you know, the amount that you work. So um, uh, the, you know, if you're doing one day a week, they pay 80% of your salary. And then the unemployment department pays the, um, the amount that you would have gotten on unemployment if you were unemployed uh, for that 20% for that one day. Um, and so it actually helps cover what a furlough would cost um, um, and it, it helps lift folks up. And now in this current moment, um, and the other benefit of WorkShare is that it's 100, in, in the CARES Act, it's 100% federally funded. So all WorkShare will get reimbursed by the federal government 100% for that unemployment day. So it helps cover the cost of the furlough day that people are taking with some unemployment dollars. At the same time, during the pandemic unemployment, um, some people, um, people are eligible for the additional $600 a week that, um, that the federal government has made um, um, available for um, laid off workers. So in some places, some workers are actually seeing um, their salary go up momentarily. That the $600 um, payment goes uh, runs out on July 25th, or the con congressional um, bill um, deadline is July 25th for that $600. We have workers that can, will continue in work share throughout the through December at the universities, but it does provide some reassurance and some resources for those days, and it's protecting people's jobs, um, especially at the universities where um, I think layoffs and leave without pay is the, op um, the other option. At the schools, I think the reason people are signing on to this is because, one, they, have a, they do have this moment in time where the federal government is covering a significant part of unemployment, so it's not coming from the same pot of money at all. Um, it's all coming from the federal government. But then two, um, I do believe that people know that the cuts that could be happening in the future will really impact what next year looks like. Um, and by doing this, I think they're trying to make sure that the cuts are as minimal as possible and that schools can get back to normal as quickly as possible, knowing that costs may increase. And so I know that we signed this agreement for our Portland Public Schools classified staff. I know the teachers have signed it in multiple, almost all the um, uh, I think a, a lot of the big um, school districts have now signed it. And it's one of the ways that um, we could potentially be saving money that will help offset future budget cuts. Great. All right. So moving right along, we'll try to get through as many questions as we can. Uh, just a reminder, you can still press nine um, if you have a question um, and uh, the staff will get you into the queue. And then if we don't have time to get to your question by 730, um, you can leave a message and then we'll make sure someone gets back to you. Um, so uh, next question is going to be coming from Lawrence Curtis and Sisters. Lawrence, if you can hear me, go ahead with your question. Yeah, thank you. Um, good evening. 
I recently did my uh, priority survey, and one of the, the um, articles or sections that was touched on was retirement incentives. Well, retirement incentive is a, it's a really a broad term. That could be just about anything. Do you have any information <clears throat> such as who would bring that to the table? State or SEIU or how? How would that be brought to the table? Anything on an implementation time frame? Like I said earlier, any information on that? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I'm going to say a couple things and then I'm going to pass it over to Steve um, Demarest, um, who I like to think of as our um, one of our PERS experts. Um, but um, I think the question is we don't know, but we want it to be a thing that is explored in this moment. Um, during the 2008 recession, um, we've done a little bit of research and, you know, about a little over a dozen states um, enacted a variety of different early retirement incentive programs um, to help prevent layoffs. And we believe that with 30% of the, um, of the um, public workforce eligible to retire, that this may be um, a, a program for us to look at. It's also an opportunity in the moment of COVID um, where uh, folks who are at high risk, if they um, are able to retire, this might be the right thing for them to do. So we um, don't have, I don't have all the answers to your question, but I do think um, we, we want it to be part of something that people are talking about um, so that we can get some, so we can get more information so we can think about what it would look like. Steve, you want to add to that or think about what it, you know, I know that you've been a part of these conversations in the past. Sure, thanks. So, uh, and thanks for the question. Uh, so again, as Melissa said, we don't have a specific proposal or a specific timeline. Uh, we put the concept out there to see how people, um, uh, we would respond to it. But we know uh, there's a big thing and maybe the biggest thing for many people who are considering retirement or make a decision to delay retirement for, for now is healthcare. Uh, so that is something uh, to address and to consider and could be considered as part, might be part of a retirement incentive plan. And another big issue for people who are planning their retirement date uh, is consideration of their final average salary. Um, and so because for many people at this point most people that's going to determine uh what the size of their uh monthly pension is about is, is going to be so if there's is there is there if we can address that final average salary piece um so uh so some people can preserve uh, a higher salary our higher final salary, average salary without actually working additional years uh, to keep that, that average up, that might be something to look at. Great. Thank you, Steve and Melissa. Um, oh, anything else to add there, Steve? No, just a thank you. Okay, great. Uh, moving right along then, um, our next question is going to come from Daniel Schroeder. Uh, Daniel, if you can hear me, go ahead with your question. Yeah, uh, so hello. My question was, uh, if it does, furloughs do to get discussed, the agency I work for, which is Oregon State Hospital, they love to hire a ton of administration, non-union employees, and cut on the floor where it's needed the most to take care of uh, Oregonians' clients. Um, if they're going to, if we can just have a discussion of a model like Oregon State Health University did with their cuts on a percentage of the high, highest paid people get a bigger cut. So it doesn't affect all the pay raises that we've already accomplished, that we've already done the furloughs back in 2008, you know, back in 2009 and 10, um, for the, the food service workers and the uh, uh, housekeepers that are already making barely enough to make a living wage on. Yeah, I mean, that's, it's a really important question. You know, we actually have been facing a lot, this a lot, right? You know, I've kind of mentioned that um, our universities are in a different spot and um, we've been facing this a lot and just launched a campaign to make sure that they, you know, they're, when, they, when they're cutting someone's salary, I mean, it's different at the universities because they have people who make significantly more money, but who literally make a million dollars. Um, 5%, it's not quite the same as when you cut someone's salary um, who makes um, $25,000. And so this is a really important issue. It's not only important because there's actual real money 
um, by making sure that um, we either cut administrative positions, or cut administrative blow, or make sure that the highest paid folks are taking cuts. But it's also just important because it sends a message to what the, the like the reality is the services that need to get done right now are the people who are interacting one-on-one -on -one with the public who are really doing delivering these services. I mean, I think one of the things I spend a lot of time thinking about right now is just the workload crisis that many of our agencies will face the moment that um, you do get to go back to work and how do we make sure that the frontline staff who is doing that work, um, uh, we have enough frontline staff and that they're not the ones taking the brunt of the cut. This will be something we will prioritize in any conversations about shared sacrifice. Um, it's, a, it's a conversation that we think is very important. And we also believe that we have many legislators who will be on our side if um, there is not a shared sacrifice. I think you know we want to make sure that the state is talking about both administrative positions um, differently than frontline positions. We want to be talking about you know there's um, contracts. Um, and where can we be saving on those types of programs? Oftentimes those um, contracts and kind of, you know, supplies and services which contracts fit into kind of get bloated as the budgets um, continue to increase. And so there needs to be a hard look at those um, line items and those programs as we're talking about cuts. We should not be talking about frontline services first. We should talk about frontline services last, and we should make sure that we're looking at those programs and administrative blow, um, blow um, at, at, in the first part of this conversation. So agree completely and it will definitely be something that we're going to be engaging on um, and we're you know right now scouring these cut lists which are not real but the thing that they do provide us is an opportunity to see the possibilities of programs um, or ways that agencies would cut their budgets that are not people and so how can we find that list and figure out what that list looks like so we're prioritizing it as we go into the conversation Thanks, Melissa. Um, moving along to our next question. Um, sorry, here we go. Um, this next question is from Cheryl Jackson in Springfield. Cheryl, if you can hear me, go ahead with your question. Hi, good evening. Um, it's just a real simple one. It's like, you know, when we go through the cuts and freezes, um, I was wondering if we could get the status of how it would affect a lemon duration person and a, I want to say, contract person when a freeze goes in effect um, and they start um, start tearing at the source of getting rid of people and laying them off, is once they go through a freeze, does the eliminate duration go away right away? Or is it something that they're going to carry out until they go through layoffs? Um, uh it really depends on the agency and it depends on why that position is limited duration. Um, because um, if it's limited duration because there's no approved position, that may impact of it in the budget. And so it really, it, it is a pretty specific agency by agency um, question. Um, I don't, um, so I don't know if there's a general across the board answer. Usually when there's a hiring freeze though, there's not then a automatic reduction. It really is, um, you know, you're not hiring to fill vacant positions. Um, but um, I think based on, you know, when there's cuts, um, limited duration and temp employees are clearly more at risk, but it does, um, but it doesn't mean it's automatic when there's a hiring freeze. Um, Molly, is there anything that specific that you would add to that? Um, no, I mean, I think what you said is right. The one thing I would flag that's different for our limited duration folks is the, um, the rights within the contract for the layoff process. So there are fewer rights afforded to limited duration folks in that actual process, depending on the type of limited duration and how long that person's been employed. Um, but as far as the positions determined to be eliminated, um, what Melissa said is, um, is accurate. Great, thank you both. Uh, moving right along, um, again, we've got another 10 minutes or so for questions, so we'll try to get through as many as we can. Um, next up, we have um, Miriam. Uh, Miriam, uh, apologies, I don't have your location, but I understand your question is about um, management uh, saying that uh, the union was um, not negotiating. So I wanted to give you the opportunity to ask that question. Uh, if you can hear me, go ahead. I can, thanks. So a little bit of context. Today, staff and my agency were told that a third of us will be laid off in two rounds of layoffs by October 1st with additional layoffs possible uh, after that until there may be only a quarter of my agency left. 
and this plan was approved by the governor. So I have two questions. Why was the union unaware of this plan as it was being developed uh, with the governor's office? And the second question requires a little more context. Um, staff were told by management that they wanted to negotiate with the union, but they couldn't because the union needed to initiate and that didn't happen. So my second question is, which party is responsible for requesting that the contract be reopened for negotiations and when will that happen? So can I just ask, which agency do you work for? The Watershed Enhancement Board. Thank you. Um, uh, one, we've never, no one has asked us to negotiate over anything. Um, so we can't refuse to negotiate when no one's asked us to negotiate. Um, and uh, I think we've been hearing conversations about layoffs. Um, and this is the second one I've heard about this week that I'm finding super frustrating. Because as I noted, we actually sent a letter to the governor last week, um, signed by AFSME, that said we would like to engage in a conversation with them about reductions to staff, like um, about alternatives to layoffs before any layoffs happen. So we sent that letter proactively. No one asked us to send the letter. Um, so the idea that they're saying we're refusing to negotiate is not true at all. Um, and I think it'd be really good to understand where they think um, they, um, they got that information, whether they approached us, which I, it feels impossible, or whether they think the governor's office approached us, um, which also feels unlikely to me. Um, but I think we will and want to engage in alternatives to layoffs. You know, the one, um, uh, I, um, uh, I, I just want to add that I think there's, um, there's just really, there is alternatives to layoffs that are potentially possible in this moment. And so that's why we really want to engage. And I'm going to turn it over to Molly. I think she might have some more information specifically about your agency. Yeah, I mean, just just a little bit. One, I, I share Melissa and, and your frustration of, about this process. I think it's it's been um, extremely frustrating the kind of rapid pace in which um, OWEB, the Water Enhancement Board, has moved forward with this without first engaging in the conversation. That being said, we did, um, you know, get the heads up last night, I think, like late last night, that this notice was going to go out to workers. And today we sent an, uh, a notice that we want to meet and negotiate alternatives. So, um, you know, as soon as we heard about it, basically, we did reach out and request that meeting. And so um, we are waiting to hear back. They have a contractual obligation to meet with us. So we don't think that that will be an issue um, to be able to meet with them. But we um, we definitely are not, have not, will not refuse to meet. And I think one thing that's important, and I think this is something that's, you know, been unique in this process compared to other budget shortfalls. And I think we're, we're learning, but I think agencies are trying to figure out how to navigate it too, um, is that each agency is in a uniquely different spot, especially fee-based agencies. Oftentimes when there's budget shortfalls, fee-based agencies are actually um, a, a place where they don't have as big of a budget shortfall potentially as a general fund agency. Um, and that is completely the opposite right now. Fee-based agencies oftentimes are taking gigantic hits to their budget um, with really no ways to make up those budgets. And that, that's very similar to what um, our workers are facing in higher education. Um, and so I think um, it is meaning that um, these fee-based agencies are like, look, we have to maintain this budget. We have to figure it out. So we're going to come up with these solutions, um, which has never happened before. And I don't know if they're not, they don't quite understand how to engage with us. But if folks are talking to their managers um, and they are saying that we're not engaging, please, um, you know, uh, I will give you the phone number, but I'm going to, you know, engage them, reach out to us directly and let us know, because that is not the case. Like I said, uh, like Mickey mentioned earlier, um, many school districts are finding creative solutions. We've been um, in act active in creative solutions at the um, at the university level. And I think there are creative solutions in this moment. And we need agencies to be able to have the flexibility to engage with us on those solutions. All right, great. So I'm going to try to slip a couple more questions in here before our deadline. Uh, this next question is from John. Apologies, John, I don't have your last name, but I understand you're at Veterans Affairs. Uh, John, if you can hear me, go ahead with your question. Hello, good evening. Thank you. Uh, mine's a pretty simple question. A lot of the feedback that I get um, as we're nearing, uh, or, or it seems like we're nearing uh, uh, transitioning from telework um, 
back to getting into the office are people who are high risk. Um, are the plans to take into consideration the, the people who are high risk and perhaps stagger and take a look at what the numbers do um, before bringing the high risk people in? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, um, uh, the answer is yes. We want to engage with the state. Like I said, they are um, in phase one right now. And what they've said um, right now is um, is that phase one will mean no changes to current work situations. Um, we expect that to change in phase two. And just so you have a sense of how um, the state will phase back into phase two is after a county um, or an area has been in phase one for 21 days um, and there's no increase in um, hospital, major increase in hospitalizations, they've been able to track all the cases, they've been able to provide all the testing, then there can be an application to be in phase two. So we believe that we have um, a minimum of that amount of time to engage with the state about what phase two looks like in high risk um, people in high risk categories are as a you know one of our priorities and continued conversations about how they can continue to do their work and feel safe um, but we have not been we have not really started to engage um, much in what that looks like um, because not every county is in phase one yet we also i think are going to hopefully encourage the state to make sure that they follow the same phasing statewide um, and not county by county so that it will be um, easier to create policies around it. Um, but we um, hope to engage in that conversation in the coming week um, about just like what does it look like for the state to enter from phase one to phase two and high risk employees, um, people with, you know, childcare, um, these are these are top of mind um, as we go through that process. And then as Molly mentioned earlier, um, we currently are working to extend our LOA, um, which would be in effect until the state of emergency is no longer in place. And so um, that, um, that LOA we're hoping to extend um, as well um, to take into some of those considerations. Thanks, Melissa. Um, so another question that is kind of a combination of a question a number of people have asked is, what, um, what's the timing of stuff that's coming up in the future? When are we gonna be expecting a special session? If there are changes that impact our contracts, when will we be bargaining? And when might um, cuts actually end up impacting people? Uh, would it be possible to just kind of run through the timeline on things again for everybody? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. So like um, we mentioned, the revenue forecast came out yesterday. Um, state legislative leaders are gonna start having um, both budget committees, um, which is the budget committee currently when the legislature is not in, it's um, done through the emergency board. Um, those the, the emergency board will start to talk about budget in the coming two weeks um, and policy committees. I think we expect, and like I um, mentioned earlier, we want um, any cuts or any conversation about the budget to happen in a special session. Um, the governor's um, only authority is to do across the board allotment cuts, and we think that is the bad a bad way to move forward in this conversation. Um, and so we want the legislature to come back in um, into a special session. We, I think, believe that will happen in mid-June, mid to late June, um, based off of the current trajectory they're on in terms of timing. We do also believe that we should wait and see what the federal government does. We think it's a mistake to make cuts based off of incomplete information when we do think there will be some fourth package out of the federal government. We don't think it'll be the trillion dollars that the um, that the House passed, the, you know, um, the House passed last week, but we do think that there will be some money available for states and local governments um, in, pack, in another package from the federal government. And we do not want any cuts to happen until that, um, until either the conversation is finalized and there won't be any money, um, or we know what money is coming to the states. And so we also are pushing to make sure that, that, that that's taken into consideration in this timeline. So I think that we won't, um, I don't think we'll have tons, we'll, we'll have complete clarity to this until the end of June. Um, but hopefully we'll be coming into that information. Um, but I do think that once there's clarity to it, the um, impact of the changes to the budget will happen very quickly. Since we're midway through the biennium, cuts are just harder in the second year of a biennium. And so um, I think that I, I know that there's some desire to um, make sure that if there, if there does have to be any cuts, that we're really making those decisions by the end of June. We also do know that there'll be another revenue forecast, the September revenue forecast. Um, which will be a really important forecast because, you know, right now the forecast is there's just there's a lack of information. There's a lot of assumptions that are going into the forecast. 
forecasts. And so we do hope that the September forecast um, will give us a little bit more clarity. And we think that one option might be to leave some pieces undone on the table until that September forecast comes out so that there's more clarity in the, in the future budget to see how our state is responding. So that's kind of a timeline from here. Um, and I think that there's going to be multiple different steps along the way. And our goal with this call was to make sure that people um, got the update right after the revenue forecast, but that also we um, we hope to be in kind of continued communication with folks throughout this process. And we know that there's lots of questions. There's questions today about potential layoffs. Um, we want to make sure that we can be getting all of those questions and trying to respond as quickly as possible. So one, I just want to repeat the phone number if people want to call um, and have questions or have information they need to share with us, um, please call 1-844-503-SEIU. That's 1-844-503-7348. Um, that is our member assistance center. And not only can you, um, you know, get any your questions answered, they can transfer you to the member resource center if you have a contract question that you need answered, or they can share information organizationally. If there's something coming up in your agency and you don't know where to go to, they can share that information with Molly Malone, who's our public services director, um, or um, with myself or with Steve. And so please call them at the same time. If you had a question that was not able to get answered tonight, um, you can also stay on the line and leave us a message and we um, will try to get back to you with that question. And then lastly, um, I just want to repeat that you can go to our website at 503.org forward slash COVID um, for just resources there and updates um, about the pandemic. Um, and we will be continuing to update our website and get information out as in, um, any new budget details come available. So I just want to thank everyone for joining tonight. Thank everyone for the work that you guys are all doing. Um, and um, we will um, continue to keep you updated as we go along. Thanks, everyone. And that's our show this week. Thanks for tuning in. You can find this podcast on Spotify, Apple, Stitcher, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. And please give us a follow and leave a positive review that will help more people find the show. I'm your host, Ben Morris. This has been another episode of Stronger Together. Thank you all for tuning in, and we'll see you next time.